Today on Government Matters, ascertainment and the transition. For the first time on television, the woman at the center of the controversy tells her story. $21 billion in savings and a new reality for 2021, a television exclusive with GSA's Emily Murphy. And the number one story of the week might be the number one cyber attack of all time inside the cleanup from the SolarWinds hack. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The controversy over the ascertainment of the election of President-elect Biden and the start of the transition focused the media spotlight on an agency most people didn't know much about. Now, though, just about everyone that pays attention to the news knows that Emily Murphy is the administrator of the General Services Administration. She joins me for a television exclusive conversation. Emily, thanks very much for coming on the program. You referenced some pretty rough treatment in your letter to President-elect Biden. Tell me what that experience was like for you. So, Francis, I was committed every day to doing the right thing. But it, it did get, um, I think I got about 2 million emails within 48 hours. There were some threats against my family, my niece, my nephew, my dogs. Um, it, 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 the ascertainment process, I really believe, needs to be reformed because GSA just doesn't have the expertise to be second-guessing who, who wins elections. You referenced in media accounts your conversations with one of your predecessors, David Barham. He was the administrator at GSA mm -hmm. in the time of the Bush versus Gore election 2000. What did you learn from him, if anything, that applied to your situation, Emily? So David Barham and I share one thing in common, which is of the last 15 ascertainments, we are the only two who did not have a concession immediately follow the election. And in 2000, Bush v. Gore, when, uh, when David was, was the GSA administrator, the ascertainment came after the Supreme Court decision and after President Gore, uh, I'm sorry, after Vice President Gore uh, conceded. So my ascertainment was actually the first time we've ever had an ascertainment that preceded a concession by one of the candidates which really meant that I had a challenge of what evidence would I be pointing to as the basis for that decision. For me, it came down to watching you know, the election results, the certified election results that were coming in from states and looking at the initial outcomes of lawsuits. I didn't think it was GSA's job to be weighing the merits of, of whether a challenge was um, appropriate or you know, had merits. It, it was GSA's job to look at the facts as they were presented by the states. And I think David's advice to me was do the right thing. And as if you do, you know, follow the law. And if you do that, it, you'll be able to look yourself in the eye at the end of the day. And I tried to hold fast to that advice. The day that you sent the, the uh, letter that you sent of ascertainment to uh, President-elect Biden, what was different that day than the day before, Emily, that caused you to say, this is the time, the timing is correct? Um, so Michigan uh, it was, and then Pennsylvania, counties from Pennsylvania were coming in through certification. So we were watching that very closely and that was November 23rd. Um, I was, you know, had multiple calls throughout the course of the day and we really felt that that was the appropriate time to be making the decision. 
you have said on a number of occasions that you didn't get any pressure from the White House or for any, from anybody in the administration to hold out. Was there any dialogue at all with the White House about this, or were you able to operate independently and make this decision independently, Emily? I made this decision independently. When I say there were calls, I mean that I was talking to my staff and making sure that I was getting the latest numbers. Uh, the decision really was made by me without any pressure from anyone at GSA or anyone in the White House. Uh, they really did leave it up to me to do what was right. You uh, mentioned a few moments ago, and you said in your letter to President-elect Biden that this process should be changed, that you don't believe that this is the right place for this, maybe. Uh, what reform would you like to see in this process? And whose job, if not the GSA administrator, do you think, do you have an opinion about where the right place is for this uh, function to live? So I think that there are three different options. And the first one is that we were revised the Presidential Transition Act of 1963. And I know that David Barham, when he testified on ascertainment 20 years ago, suggested that Congress really needed to give clear guidance. Um, we do need clear guidance on what ascertainment means. Because the, the, the definition is to determine with certainty. You can't really determine with certainty um, without having some concrete standard to point to. Another option would be to instead have an independent commission that with people who have expertise in election law um, and in election results and have them make that recommendation. And then the the third option, which is probably the, the easiest one to implement, would be to allow that certain um, support activities, because remember, ascertainment isn't who is going to be the president. Ascertainment is who has access to transition funds and to um, into the agencies to make that available to any viable candidate at that point in time until there is a concession or until there is more clarity. And that's, so I think that that would be the easiest option. Yeah, and that was what I was curious about, Emily, because that transition function lives inside GSA, it strikes me as useful that somebody, some high executive at GSA says it's okay for this campaign, this candidate, or that campaign, that candidate, to proceed with transition functions and receive the money that GSA holds to release to that candidate. Does that piece of it, at least, do you think, should that stay at GSA? I think GSA is really well positioned to do things like provide the space for the transition. Uh, we've been providing space to the um, to the president-elect since he became the, the candidate back in September. Uh, we've been providing them with IT support. We've been providing them with uh, it, we're now providing them with with about $6.6 .6 million in funding, um, access to a SCIF, some more space, some more IT support, access to agencies. Those things are very much within GSA's ability to provide. There are back office functions that we provide to a lot of agencies throughout the government. I think it's that that the determining the, um, you know, th that actual ascertainment piece without greater guidance, that's really the challenge. Emily, a number of longtime GSA employees have told me over the last several weeks they think that uh, your agency's work has been obscured by this ascertainment situation. We'll look at more on what the General Services Administration does and what uh, you have done during your time there. When Government Matters continues, we'll be back in a moment.
Welcome back. The ascertainment of presidential elections is one very, very small aspect of the job the General Services Administration's administrator does. The current holder of that job says her agency saved taxpayers $21 billion during her tenure there. Emily Murphy's administrator of GSA. Our television exclusive conversation continues. Emily, thanks uh, for this. How did you arrive at that number of $21 billion? Well, first of all, it's 21.3 billion okay. because every dollar counts. Uh, so we we actually looked across each of our portfolios, and that within the Federal Acquisition Service, it was about 17.7 billion, with the remainder uh, um, coming from the Public Building Service, and. The largest savings actually came in the travel, transportation, logistics area, where we got nearly $9 billion in savings. But then IT, our IT category was a close second with $4.5 billion in savings. We, and it, we got the savings by just increasing the volume in sales. So the sales on using GSA contract vehicles grew from $55 billion to $75 billion in the three years that I've been administrator. Um, as opposed to $15 billion in the in the prior decade and growth. So we really, this really was just an enormous amount of growth. But we also brought to bear new contracts like SmartPay 3, got more rebates to our customers when they use their, their credit cards or the EIS contracts. I know Eric Hargan came on the show with me a few months ago and talked about how EIS is saving uh, HHS $700 million. So it was you know going through contract by contract and trying to find savings, whether it be in fleet, whether it be um, through IT contracting. And we, our share of IT contracting went up enormously as well from about 21% of IT dollars to almost 29% of IT dollars in the past three years. Pull back from the individual line items that you just described, Emily. What do you think the major difference is as to how GSA operates today compared to the day you were sworn in? Oh, there are a few things that I think are major differences. First of all, we're, we're working remotely, which is the, uh, we're about 96% remote at this point in time. And so we've had to sort of pivot. But if you look across GSA, where we currently have the highest customer satisfaction scores we've ever had, the highest employee satisfaction scores we've ever had, and the highest vendor satisfaction scores we've ever had. So we've been really listening to both our customers, our vendors, and our employees, pulling that together and trying to find ways that we can actually meet their needs. It meant investing in our IT systems, which uh, I, I have to give my predecessors credit. They did a lot of great work in making sure that we have the IT necessary for telework in place. We're now investing in things like making GSA Advantage work better so that anyone who wants to buy, a, buy something from GSA, it's easier to find it. We went from having 24 different contracts uh, under our, our schedules program to having just one so that companies who want to sell the GSA don't have to go hunting around and, and submit the same paperwork multiple times. Our, but our customer agencies also don't have to go hunting around trying to find that solution. I th think I've used the analogy with you before that it, it sometimes feels like GSA is a giant jigsaw puzzle and everything you need is in the box and we give you the box and we say here, you know, you're taken care of. Um, what we've been trying to do is assemble more of, the, of those pieces for, for everyone first so that they don't have to do as much work to get that solution. How are you going to codify that? How have you gone about trying to integrate that concept 
into the operations of the agency so that when you hand this off to someone in the Biden administration, this stuff perpetuates, this stuff continues to move forward? So I think that with the, we're at 99% of our schedules, uh, schedule holders have accepted the modification for the new schedule. I think there are only 80 companies that actually haven't moved to the newest schedule at this point in time. So I think that that's done. Um, I think that the work that's happening in terms of um, 876, which is the increasing task order competition, that that's going to move forward because that's just good government. Uh, and, and that's actually one of the things that I think is best about GSAs. We're not an agency where we do highly partisan work. We're an agency where we're really about making sure that we serve our customer agencies and we ultimately serve the American people. So we don't tend to do 180s in terms of policy changes. But I think that we, what I've tried to put in place is sort of a flywheel approach where by making our systems better and easier to use, we attract more vendors. Um, and so it's easier to sell and we attract more customers. And for every vendor we attract, we attract another customer. For every customer, we get more vendors. So we just keep adding in. That lets us deliver greater savings, which increases our value proposition, but it also means that we then have more resources to invest in making our systems better, which will hopefully then attract more customers, which will attract more vendors. So it just becomes a, a cycle of trying to make things easier for everyone involved. Emily, less than a minute left. The Centers of Excellence now is codified in legislation. What does it mean that Congress says, we want you, we want GSA to continue to do this? I think it's a great, good housekeeping seal of approval. And the fact that it happened, what, three years after we created the first Center of Excellence is lightning fast for government. Um, I think the best endorsement, though, that we've gotten is that two of the 15 agencies that were, that have had centers of excellence are actually legislative branch agencies. So if Congress is actually willing to use these, that's great. Emily Murphy, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Francis. Up next, the number one story of the week, straight ahead on Government Matters, a major cyber attack and what it means for every agency across the government. You're watching ABC7. Now, the number one story of the week, the cyber breach that federal agencies are cleaning up from could go down as the biggest and most damaging breach in history. The fingerprints on the attack point to a longtime adversary of the United States. Suzanne Spaulding is senior advisor of Homeland Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She's former undersecretary for the National Protection and Programs Directorate at the Department of Homeland Security. Jack Wilmer's chief executive officer at Core Force former Deputy Chief Information Officer for Cybersecurity and CISO at the Pentagon. Folks, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Suzanne, I start with you. What is your takeaway from the reports that you've seen this week about this hack? Well, there's so much we don't know yet, Francis. So we'll be um, getting lessons learned from this, uh, you know, disaster for quite some time. Uh, it's, it is, as CISA recently said, <clears throat> very grave for our national security. Um, but I, I, I think it is very telling that among the best cybersecurity experts in the world uh, at FireEye were hacked. 
So it's an important reminder of what we often say, which is that a determined nation-state adversary particularly, uh, given enough time, will be able to get into your system. And it doesn't mean that you give up or throw up your hands. It means you continue to make it hard for them to get in, make it hard for them to, once they're in, move around undetected, make it hard for them to exfiltrate data undetected. Um, but, but it does mean that you have to operate on the assumption that bad guys will get into your system. And we talk about that. It is really hard to do, and very few people really do it. And it starts with identifying your high-value assets, and that means knowing what is of high value to your adversary, to the bad guys. Jack Wilmer, same question to you. What do you take away from what you've read about this report this week? Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with everything Suzanne just said. I think that, uh, you know, this is obviously an insidious attack. It's a huge potential scale. Uh, so when you look at potentially 18,000 organizations that have been impacted by it, uh, that's going to be uh, pretty substantial. And, and when you look at the fact that it's an advanced adversary who's been in these systems for uh, a period of months, that's given them a lot of time to be able to hide and cover their tracks. And so I think it's going to be very difficult to get them out. Uh, the one other thing that I would add that uh, is a really interesting takeaway was added in CISA's latest uh, advisory where they talked about the grave nature of this and they said that the solar winds Orion compromise was not the only uh, initial vector in that this adversary has used so I think it'll be very interesting as we learn more about uh, what some of the other vectors in uh, have actually been and, and the scope of this could get even uh, bigger than we're looking at now. Suzanne what happens next logistically after an attack like this who does what triage response repair what is, what's the chain of events that will happen in the coming weeks? Well, and of course it's already begun. Uh, and we do have some lanes in the road. So the FBI is in there right away looking at trying to, to do that attribution. And it uh, seems to be uh, pre pretty clearly attributed to the Russians and in fact to the SVR, their intelligence uh, agency and, uh, and, and presumably an, uh, a group that we know about, although more recent information raises questions about that, whether this is a new group with new, new tactics uh, and, and ways of operating. Uh, but they're doing that and they're, they're trying to get information that they can provide to CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency at DHS, that is responsible for what we call asset response. So they're responsible for um, helping to immediately kind of mitigate the damage, get information out to all of the people. And in this case, it's a lot of people in government and the private sector who need to understand uh, how this happened. And, and as uh, Jack says, multiple ways in which it happened uh, and, and try to stem the damage and then, and then help people understand how to mitigate it. So those are, those are the two key players right now uh, in terms of response, FBI and DHS. The White House has a, a very important coordinating role, and they've called the uh, uh, coordinating groups, the unified coordinating group and the uh, uh, coordination response group uh, to come together to develop plans, to, to share knowledge about what we know. They should be bringing members of the private sector who have key knowledge, uh, like FireEye and perhaps some of the uh, uh, ISPs, et cetera, to help them understand this. Uh, but those are the those are the major movements here, and of course the intelligence community is doing everything it can to understand from its perspective, using its unique authorities and tools, what has happened here. Jack, a lot of comparisons this week to the Office of Personnel Management breach in 2015. After the OPM breach, the CIO there, Donna Seymour, got just beaten up right and left from Congress, especially about that breach, even though she wasn't entirely responsible. 
How does one attribute, if it's even possible, accountability within the federal government to this, or given Suzanne's comments that we should assume the bad guys are going to get in if they want to, is that even appropriate at this point in time? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, attribution is definitely going to be uh, a really important topic over the next coming months. Uh, I think that's generally something that uh, people will focus on once we've gotten through uh, the triage of responding to the actual incident. Uh, so Suzanne talked a lot about the uh, whole of government efforts that are going to occur uh, in response to this in terms of the various groups that are stood up sharing uh, what's going on. And, and I think there's going to be a lot of activities inside of agencies just to determine the scope of uh, the potential compromise, uh, try and figure out how uh, we can limit where the adversaries may uh, have been able to go, uh, and then focus the cleanup activities there. You know, I think part of the the interesting comparison between this and OPM is that with the OPM response, it was all about the data that was compromised, the data that the adversaries had access to. And I think what you're seeing with this is we're not even at that point yet. We just know that the adversaries have been able to get into uh, some really sensitive and important networks for the government. Uh, and, and so I think that a lot more is going to happen as we start to understand what data was potentially put at risk or exposed. Uh, in terms of attribution itself, I think that, you know, there's there's a couple vectors that we'll probably look at. I think one is the company itself, uh, SolarWinds, and, and how, uh, how their security practices were. How did this initial supply chain compromise occur? Um, I think to what Suzanne said earlier, I agree that if a nation state uh, is willing to invest enough time and uh, money in uh, going after a company, they're probably going to be successful. But I think what you want to make sure of is that this was, uh, they had to use some kind of advanced techniques, not exploiting a basic uh, cybersecurity issue. I think on the government side, where it gets really challenging is the fact that um, they're effectively using our best practices against us. I mean, one of the things that I know I preached for a long time uh, in my role in the Defense Department uh, was to try and make sure that we were as patched as possible. So as soon as these security patches come out, uh, you want to make sure that you are uh, are deploying them so that you're closing off all those known vulnerabilities. Uh, and certainly we're aware of the potential of supply chain attacks, but this is the type of thing where, um, you know, an agency might have done exactly what they're supposed to do, deploy the patches, uh, deploy the exact patch that came from the vendor. Um, and so I think that, you know, and last thing I'll say in terms of that attribution is what are the monitoring things that we had in place? So, so I think deploying the patch was, uh, frankly, them operating as they should. Uh, the question now is how should we have potentially detected these uh, follow-on actions that the adversary took? Uh, and do we have the right capabilities in place to do that? Jack Wilmer, Suzanne Spaulding, thanks both very much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every one of our programs by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GovMatters to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose.
Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.